Good evening. Ooh. <laughs> Welcome to the Gerald D. Hines uh, College of Architecture uh, and Design. My name is Alan Bruton. I'm the Director of Interior Architecture here at the college. Uh, for the next few minutes, we may be hearing a few of the plucked uh, chords uh, from the Ellen Furman Fullman installation uh, out in the atrium, uh, which is uh, performances of that piece will be on Thursday and Saturday evenings. And they're part of the annual countercultural festival, uh, countercurrents festival mounted by the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Center for the Arts here at the university. Texas Light, the art and architecture of the Rothko Chapel, is the culminating event in this semester's public program series, MXTX, here at the college. And we're honored to co-convene tonight's conversation with the Rothko Chapel as they begin their ambitious uh, adaptations to their historic site. Uh, the interdisciplinary group we welcome to the table this evening speak directly to the kind of culturally meaningful collaboration we at the college care deeply about. Uh, please join me in welcoming uh, David Lesby, Leslie, Executive Director of the Rothko Chapel, to the podium. Good evening, everyone. Now we're going to do a Rothko Chapel mindful moment. This is what we do all the time in the chapel, but I'm now on the University of Houston space, but I hope you'll indulge me anyway. So if you do a couple things, is one is turn off your cell phones or silent them, that would be great. And the second is, this may be really hard at a university ses setting, but no photos or videotaping. Now, you're on your own. But the reason for that is we are videotaping tonight, and we're also taking photography, photographs that will be posted on our website. The reason we do this is to really take a moment to really be in tune and attentive to our speakers this evening. So if you do that, that'd be great. Now, with that behind us, I want to say a little something about tonight's uh, program. From the day the chapel opened in late February 1971, properly lighting the chapel has been an ongoing challenge. In the early years, natural light unimpeded through the skylight was too bright and often either washed out or cast in dark shadows the magnificent Rothko paintings. In the evening, when artificial lights were turned on, the light was inadequate to properly present the artwork and the interior of the chapel. Over the decades, there have been different attempts to discover the optimum lighting solutions, including employing an array of baffles and artificial light that uh, just really didn't quite get the job done. And while there were somewhat positive uh, solutions that happened during that period, the initial design challenges helped us to come to this mantra that we use so often, the light in the chapel is not quite right. So in the spirit of can-do Houston, Texas attitude, chapel leadership has launched the Opening Spaces, a multi-year capital improvements project that includes the restoration of the chapel, as well as adding several new buildings and elements to our campus that will allow us to better serve our many visitors and the larger community. Central to this project and the focus of tonight's program is our attempt to better understand the complexities and dynamics of light in this part of Texas and how best to redesign the chapel skylight and related lighting systems so that we maximize the use of natural light and present the chapel in ways intended by the founders, artists, and architects 
who created this dynamic and transformative sacred space. And in doing so, we hope to change that mantra from the light inside the chapel is not quite right to the light inside the chapel is exactly right. No small task, friends. And I'm looking at our three speakers. So to help us better understand the complexity of this task before us, we're really fortunate to have with us three incredible uh, and very committed people to the Rothko Chapel. What I'm gonna do is just a brief introduction of each of them in the order they'll speak, and then a little more about the format tonight. First, we'll have Christopher Rothko, the son, uh, second child and son of Mark and Alice, Mary Alice Rothko, who is a former practicing psychologist who holds a doctorate in psychology from the University of Michigan. He's the chair of the Opening Spaces Development Committee, as well as our Capital Campaign Committee, and is a former chairman of the Rothko Chapel Board. Without a doubt, he is the Rothko expert, not only seen through his DNA, but also seen through the many exhibits he's curated, publications he's done, including the most recent, Mark Rothko from In the Inside Out, published by Yale University Press. Following Christopher, we'll have Stephen Cassell. Stephen is a principal of Architecture Research Office, a 30-person firm based in New York City that has won numerous design awards, including the 2018 AIA New York State Firm of the Year Award. Stephen holds an undergraduate degree in architecture from Princeton University and received his Master of Architecture from the Harvard Graduate School of Design. And I can tell you this, he's a good friend and a central member of the Opening Spaces team. So Stephen, welcome back to Houston. Following Stephen is George S. Sexton III, who established George Sexton Associates to provide consulting services in the areas of lighting design, museum design, and museum planning services. He holds a degree in architecture from Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University and is an active member of the Illuminating Engineering Society, the International Association of Lighting Designers. He also uh, most, uh, I guess currently, most recently and in town was a lighting designer for the new Drawing Institute at the Manil, if it's very good to have that uh, piece here in, in town. And has just been a uh, invaluable member of our team as he has helped all of us better understand uh, light in its fullest dimension. So George, welcome to Houston. After the three of uh, our speakers have given their formal remarks, Sandra Zalman, Associate Professor and Program Director of Art History here at the University of Houston, will moderate a conversation with our three presenters and give time for you all for some Q&A during that period of time. Uh, Professor Zalman, among her many awards and projects, has recently finished co-editing an anthology on the first 20 years of the Museum of Modern Art, which is forthcoming from Bloomsbury, and is currently engaged in a study of mid-century art museums supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and other funding entities. Following uh, her formal or her remarks, uh, we will have uh, closing remarks and then a reception after. More to follow. So. With all of that, let's welcome Christopher Rothko. Thank you, David. I take that away? I don't get the microphone. I've got to shout at you all. 
So it's, uh, it's uh, wonderful to see you all this evening. I'm glad to see that uh, the subject of the Rothko Chapel gets uh, so many people excited in this town. It has been an icon in this city for quite a few years, and it's my job to try and run you through, or I should say shoehorn, the first 40 or 45 years of the history of the Rothko Chapel into 10 minutes. So uh, <laughs> buckle your seatbelts. They didn't tell me which one was up. We'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll try that one. Hey, look at that, it worked, okay. Uh, I think you know. I think you know these people. Back in uh, 1964, Jean and Dominique Demenil uh, commissioned my father, Mark Rothko, to create what we now know as the Rothko Chapel. They already knew my father from uh, collecting his work and uh, this really starting with the uh, very important exhibition of his work in 1957 at the Contemporary here. Uh, and they were already in conversation with him. But it was uh, this chapel that really brought them into real synchrony. This was the dream commission for my father not only because he would be able to make a public space for a significant group of his work, but it could be a space where inherently the, the sort of task at hand for the viewer was on a more elevated plane that was supposed to get you beyond simply the self and to really more important questions which he was always aiming at uh, in his artwork. He drew on quite a few uh, historical examples and inspirations when he was thinking through the design of the chapel. Um, on the left are two of the temples at uh, Paestum, um, and on the right is the baptistry in Torce at the uh, Basilica in Torcello uh, near Venice. Uh, this baptistry is octagonal in shape, and he credited this as being the primary space that inspired him to make uh, the Rothko Chapel uh, an octagonal shape. Now, he... Um, he and Philip Johnson worked on this project, and uh, despite the fact that they had not done so, so well at the Four Seasons restaurant just a few years before, um, they actually had a terrific collaboration for the first portion of this project. Uh, I will say to Johnson's credit, he was incredibly flexible. Part of our project in, in uh, undertaking this really very uh, significant restoration of the chapel, part of our project was to really research every single drawing, and I'm not simply talking about architecture drawings, I'm talking at the little sketches, everything we could find in the archives to look at the history of, of, of the chapel and its skylight. And if you look at these early drawings, um, you can see just how flexible Johnson was in really letting my father shape his vision of what this chapel would be. So this is an early, uh, uh, the, the, the chapel starts as actually a square. You can see that Johnson has already built in an apse, but if you look on the edges here, my father is already starting to draw in the octagon, and Johnson ado uh, adopts that and carries it many steps further. Um, However, as uh, all Rothko-Johnson uh, liaisons <laughs> have happened, it, it eventually came to an end. And it came to an end right around that question of light, which is our subject uh, tonight. Um, this was uh, Johnson's idea of what the, what the profile of the Rothko chapels should be. He wanted to have a very large spire with an oculus at the top. And we need to remember that this isn't simply um, a building uh, where we think of the Rothko Chapel now, it was on the campus of the University of St. Thomas. It was, in fact, the capstone to the university that he had designed, the campus, I should say, that he designed there. And this was clearly a celebratory moment for him, and he wanted something spectacular. And uh, my father was less than enthused. 
uh, he wanted uh, very much to keep your eyes focused right in the picture plane. Uh, and this was what he, uh, what he countered with, uh, which you can see is a little, bit, uh, a, a, a little bit different from Johnson's vision. And this is, again, he wants to keep your, uh, your eyes in the picture plane, but he's also, uh, he's also thinking very much about your experience in the chapel. He does not want it to be a grandiose space. He wants it to be, in fact, a very intimate sort of space. Uh, after several months of not being able to sort this out, they go to the Demonials, who end up siding with my father and the firm of Barnstone and Aubrey, who I assume a lot of you folks are familiar with, um, uh, end up completing the project and working with my father to realize his vision. Um, now, this, um, this, this shape, however, doesn't come from nowhere. And in fact, it comes from what is, ironically, I think the largest influence on in what the Rothko Chapel looks like, and that is the studio that he rented in order to uh, work out this project. So he re rents an old carriage house on the east side of Manhattan, uh, specifically so he can mock up three of the walls of the chapel. It's already, by the time he rents this space, it's already uh, going to be an octagon. Um, but he's able to mock up three walls in the exact proportions that they are today. Um, but that studio is lit by a big central skylight, a broad skylight, not dissimilar from what's in the chapel today. It's the first time that my father had worked in a skylit space. So typically when we think about lighting a Rothko painting, we think about very low lighting conditions. We actually, he always preferred uh, an incandescent light. He was not a fan of skylit spaces. Once he had this studio, his, his uh, feeling about that completely changed. But we should remember that the Rothko chapel is a very different condition. These are not paintings that you hang on a museum wall. This is one installation. This is one organic space, building and paintings essentially as one. And he saw the sort of organic presence of having natural light in that space as something that would be very inspiring. Um, and it became just uh, inseparable from his vision for the space. So he takes the studio to um, uh, mock up the chapel, and then he ends up uh, having the, the chapel uh, mimic his studio. This is a, so here they're just starting to construct these walls. Uh, here is, uh, anyone who's been in the chapel will, will recognize one of the side triptychs with the doors cut in just, just as they are in the chapel today. You can just see at the top uh, that skylight, uh, which has actually got a parachute across it, and I'll talk uh, a sec in a second a little more about that parachute, but we should just note uh, that the light is quite intense right uh, in this picture. And in this picture, we have quite, again, quite a yellowish, kind of uh, very brightly sunlit space. But in this picture, which is the same space, much less so. So the, the light varied a great deal in that space. And uh, he, would, he would pull that parachute back and forth in order to modify that a little bit. But ultimately, it was not particularly well controlled. And I will uh, add uh, one of the essential pieces is that he never came to Houston. He worked this all out in New York. He never came to Houston. He never saw the light here. He never saw the site for the chapel. And the, what we're dealing with is not just that fact, but the fact that he also, that the, the commission is completely finished, actually for a few years already, but he, he dies just as the construction is beginning. So he did not oversee that construction process at all. Uh, I'm not sure that he could have fixed it, but it certainly would have happened um, differently had he, had he been alive. And one piece that absolutely would have happened differently concerns that parachute I mentioned. Now, this, is, um, this is just a quick sketch that Jean Aubrey did after visiting my father in that studio. And if you look carefully at the top, up under the skylight, there's a little squiggly line. That's, that's my father's parachute. And it was supposed to be incorporated into the chapel, or certainly that was an understanding. And 
ultimately it was not. I don't think anybody quite can explain why, but when, when the chapel opened, um, and I think I've already talked to a couple of you people in the room who, uh, who remember this, uh, we had the condition you see on the left there where there was just a, a broad open skylight with light flooding the room, much too much light for the paintings. It actually starts to damage the paintings quite quickly. And in the meantime, the paintings are around the edges. And so, although absolutely speaking, there's too much light on them, you can't really see them because they're in darkness and there's all this light in the middle of the room. Uh, the Demonils realize it pretty quickly and they put a, a scrim across the, uh, the skylight. You can see this here on the right side, but that means that we're just being lit by incandescent light, which was not supposed to be the aesthetic of the chapel or the, the experience for the viewer. And, um, and also, it doesn't do anything about getting lights to, uh, light at all to the paintings. Um, in 1977 or 78, Jean Aubrey is hired by the Demonials to work out the first of, um, uh, first of a couple of different baffles that we had in the chapel to redirect the lights to the paintings and then lower the overall light level. Um, and it was reasonably effective at doing that, uh, but you can see just how far it protrudes into the room. It really becomes its own architectural element. You no longer have a window in the room. You, it's, been, it's been basically plugged up. And, uh, the, and as you can see, this is you know, not the greatest photograph ever, but you can, um, or at least in terms of it's how it's come down to us, but you can see that the paintings are not really evenly lit. Version two happens in, uh, in 2000. This is designed by the um, uh, architectural and the engineer, I'm sorry, the uh, engineering lighting firm uh, Ove Arp. And uh, it's quite a bit smaller, and uh, it's uh, profiled just a little bit uh, better so that the paintings are lit uh, a little closer to the bottom, but they are still not lit top to bottom. And it has the additional trouble of being lit uh, from, from above so that you have this, from underneath, it looks quite dark, and you have this big, heavy thing hanging down over your head. And so until about two weeks ago, uh, this was what was in the chapel, and this was what was distributing the light and controlling the light levels. Uh, but we were all quite convinced that we could do better, and I have to say the last few years have been just an extraordinary process of working with terrific, terrific professionals that you're going to hear from tonight on devising uh, a new scheme that could really light the chapel in a beautiful way and in a gentle way uh, and really put the window back in the room. And I'll show you just a quick progression here of of uh, skylights in the chapel, the original skylight completely open on the left, in the center, the, uh, the baffle that we've had for essentially the last 20 years, which you can see, although not as bad as the first one in this regard, still projects way into the room and really changes the whole feel of the space, both because of its um, presence and because of its darkness. And then on the right, we have the rendering of what we will be, uh, we're actually we're con constructing even as we speak. Um, this is a design by uh, George Sexton Associates uh, in conjunction with uh, Architecture Research Office. And it's really, I'm gonna let them go into the details, but you can see we have our window back in the room, that we have uh, no longer uh, a room of just uh, uh, sort of uh, blacked-in windows. You still have to deal with those paintings. They still occupy your whole horizon, but there is now that window back in the room. There is the light coming in from above, and it's, I think, going to be uh, really uh, quietly, I call it, about quiet, call it quietly revolutionary. I'll give you a, um, just a more up-close view of, uh, of what that will look like. So it will, uh, I think it will really uh, change the experience. Again, not, not just going to walk in there and say, it's completely different. It's just going to feel a little airier. It's like, uh, it's like uh, 
Uh, a veil has been lifted, and you will have more air to breathe in that space. Uh, I'm going to uh, now stand down. I'll be back at the table a little later to take some questions, but I'm going to let um, uh, Stephen Cassell uh, tell you a little bit about, uh, about the architectural aspect, aspects of the project. Thank you. I always wondered how we got that couple to stand in all, all three eras. Um, so I'm going to uh, uh, talk about both some pragmatic things about the renovation of the chapel and also about uh, the intent. Um, I would say one of the joys about working on this project is I get to be in the chapel so many times while the, uh, 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 while the paintings are there and just experience it in so many different lights and, and hopefully a new light at the end, but also understand that the process of design throughout this is really a process of a bunch of people around the table, both uh, George Sexton and different uh, consultants that we're working with, but also the building committee really starting to think about what is the intent, what was the intent, and how can we align with that intent. Um, but on the other hand, there's just a lot of pragmatic things that we need to do to this, everything from fixing the roof and fixing cracked bricks and fixing a mechanical system where the equipment is in a pit uh, below ground next to the chapel, which is really not a great idea. Um, I hear it rains here, um, uh, and, and it's been, the equipment's been destroyed, so trying to fix these different things and address that. But while we're working on this every step of the way, sort of trying to pull back and create a conceptual framework of how we think about that. And I think one of the important things is uh, to think about the chapel two ways. And one of the things we learned as we started the project is really the chapel is both a place, a place to experience the transformative power of art. Uh, between uh, individual and really a, a place for contemplation. And it's really an introverted space about you and the experience, the individual and the experience. But the chapel is also an organization that, um, uh, as an organization, really deals with issues of human rights and social justice. And it has a lot of other parts to it that reach out to the world. So in some ways, I, uh, we always think of it as this one part that's sort of inward looking and the other part that's reaching out to the world and to the community. Uh, and so the restoration of the chapel is thinking about how to strengthen that experience of art in every step of the way. And some of that is um, taking small things. So you can see in that renovation that uh, opened in 2000, there were glass walls that were put up to make a vestibule when you walk in that was really to control the humidity levels and make sure it was stable space for art. Um, because there was a new mechanical system put in. That's great, but there was sort of a storefront that really doesn't say chapel to you. When you walk in and then you walk in down this little hall with a glass to one side and it really uh, sort of changes the procession of experiencing the art. So that was one thing we wanted to address. Um, we wanted to address acoustics and acoustics on two sides of it. One, making sure that the space is quiet and the equipment and mechanical equipment that you're not hearing humming in the background, which, which you would, and so we're working on isolating that. We're putting new doors in that isolate the sound from the street or trucks or cars driving by or uh, people talking. At the same time, all that red, this is a reflected ceiling plan um, that's showing the ceiling where we're putting acoustic absorptive plaster, a special plaster that will absorb sound, uh, and we're doing that for two reasons. One, to dampen the sound, but also make sure when there are um, uh, events in there that it works well for a space for, for uh, music and spoken, spoken word. So a lot of details like that. Um, uh, and then, of course, the most important thing, the, the space itself and the, uh, the skylight itself. And so what's really interesting um, 
you know, the space was designed to be a powerful space, powerful space because of your engagement uh, with the art within sort of a totally designed um, uh, experience. And the 2000 um, a baffle that was put in is actually quite powerful in a negative way, I would argue, um, because what's really interesting spatially is because of the light around that edge and then the hole in the center, there's such high contrast that it makes the baffle itself feel um, almost like uh, you know, this incredible void that in some ways, to me at least, competes with the painting itself. It brings your eye up there, and instead of spatially opening up and really being about uh, uplift, it sort of compresses the space in a way that undermines, I think, the original intent um, but it does show that uh, architectural interventions can be quite powerful. Um, uh, just, uh, uh, it also shows, which is interesting, so Arup, um, uh, uh, the engineers, did, uh, did this installation. It's actually one of the early um, work, according to them, I was talking to lighting designer, where they used a computer to calculate the light levels on the walls from what they did. So on the one hand, technically, it made a lot of sense, but it's the important thing, and I think one of the things I've learned from working with George is while you can have something technically correct, it can actually undermine your goal, and that you need to experience it and set up your ways of, of, uh, of testing ideas in order to allow you to really see what the true uh, result will be. Um, and then the other most important thing is to think about why you're going there to experience, and you're going there to experience art that is incredibly subtle, and powerful, and then that a lot of our job is to try to clear things out of the way to create both a um, physical space and create time for you to really engage uh, the art. And so we do that in a couple different ways. Uh, one, you have to think about this not as a just a, you don't just arrive in the center of the space, there's a procession of how you go in. There's, of course, the uh, relationship of the reflecting pool and broken obelisk to the chapel. Um, we're adding new landscaping on either side of the chapel and adding more, more trees that will create a dappled light that will allow your eye to start to adjust when you're going into the chapel, and George will talk about that in, in greater detail. Um, and so if you look at a cross-section, you know, I always think about this as you have the chapel and the reflecting pool and broken obelisk, and that sort of makes this larger precinct. And then we have to think about that whole area um, as you're going in, and that uh, procession as you move into the space, all the way to what the vestibule is like, or the foyer when you walk in, what is that experience, until you get to the center of the space and how the, the uh, uh, space itself and, and uh, skylight is, is uh, redesigned that George is going to talk about in, in um, uh, how, how that works. Um, part of it is also trying to take away some of the things that need to be uh, in there. There's a lot of, when there are, there will be fewer events here, and I'll talk about that much later, because some of the events will eventually be in a new, uh, new building. But when there are microphones and speakers and all that stuff, we're trying to hide everything. Um, so there's not cables about everything can take away from your experience, every small distraction. Uh, so we try to pull that away. So in the uh, current entry, the uh, floor plan is right here. Those are the little glass walls. And then the door is right here. We're, we're subtly adjusting the entry, so we're moving the front doors forward. If you just watch magically, they'll jump forward like that. Um, uh, it's harder than that in real life. Um, and then putting the double doors in here, redesigning that entry so that you still have the control, but you're really just walking into uh, a, like a really considered space. Um, and that when you're in that space, it is purposely darker. Um, it has an absorptive acoustic ceiling and uh, uh, working with threshold acoustics. Um, one of the things I always like to say is that when you walk into a space that's a little bit dead sound-wise, it forces you to lower your voice. 
You just, it has a sort of social contract. So we want people to come in and sort of like, a, and just take away some of the other pragmatics that are there, which are also the desk and where you buy things, and that's going to go into a new welcome, um, welcome house. Um, and really then uh, open it up so you get to experience into the space. So what, what it was originally conceived and the height that's there um, to where it is uh, as of two weeks ago, and now the baffle is down, which is very exciting, um, to uh, where it's going to end up, where the space opens up, and most importantly spatially, um, both for lighting of the, of the Rothko's, but also, especially the light gets thrown to the walls, away from the floor, and that reshapes the proportion of the space. You know, the shape of space really depends on light, so that quality of light, uh, while part of it is about making sure that there's good quality light onto the, um, uh, onto the paintings, but it also gives you a better volumetric feel of, of that space itself. Um, and uh, also, I think one other really important thing about the skylight is it's a connection to nature. So when a cloud goes over, um, and you know, there's subtle changes that means you're you're connected with nature, even if it's sort of abstracted by by the skylight itself. Because in the end, it really is about engaging uh, uh, sort of the transformative uh, power of art and the Manil's vision and Rothko's vision. So I'm going to pass it over to uh, George, um, and. Uh, I'll advance for you. <laughs> so I'm going to take you a little bit into the weeds and hope, hopefully lead you out again. Um, this is where it began, on the top and left. And what's happening in this, in this space with light is that the most, all of the light is in the center of the room, exactly in the wrong place. And this skylight created a lot of intensity and, as Christopher mentioned, a lot of conservation problems. So this was one of the things that was un unanticipated about the, the Texas light. Uh, and through many iterations, this baffle was here two weeks ago. Uh, it's interesting. It was very successful. Eric did a very good job in terms of bringing the light levels down to conservation museum standards so there was no more continued damage to the, to the paintings. And what's interesting, the, the little dot in the middle of the baffle, the little aperture, actually gives the room a little bit of ambient light, but really not enough. And I think one of the things is, in order to experience the space, the walls want to have a glowing presence, be slightly the brightest thing in the room, and the room itself to have a soft glow. So the original skylight really had that in mind, but it lost uh, because of the intensity <clears throat> and the damage it was causing to the paintings and because there was too much light in the middle of the room. Your experience of the, of the paintings actually begins when you're outside. Your eye is adapted to 14,000 foot candles of light and we're trying to achieve about 10 to 16 foot candles. So that's a huge transition. It's like being in the theater in a movie theater in the reverse where you're there in the afternoon going to the matinee and then you step outside and you in the blinding light and your eyes just shocked with so much light you can't see and maybe you're startled so the first we developed oops excuse me the top uh, diagram is a series of steps about how to bring your eye down to a level where you're ready to see the, the paintings on the, if you see here the obelisk, you see a lot of the sky and the brightness. So the landscape is beginning to get your, the addition of trees, the change of the, uh, the plaza to a slightly darker material. 
is beginning to get your eye to adapt to the inside. And the vestibule, the foyer of the, of the chapel, has a huge uh, impact on bringing your eye down so that when you actually step into the chapel, it's a natural transition and you feel a little bit lifted when you see the paintings. The second concept is really taking the skylight and directing light in a way that pushes most of the light to the walls and, and at the same time not sacrificing the ambient light in the middle of the room. So this, this system, which I'll talk a little bit more about, is a little bit like Venetian blinds in your house. If you play with Venetian blinds, you can see how it moves light around the space, on the floor, on the walls, on the ceiling. So this, this in a sense, the Louvre system is a very sophisticated um, Venetian blind. I've been working with this system for about 20 years. Um, it was this idea of controlling light and, and, and directing light was first introduced to me by Edison Price, uh, who was really one of the first modern lighting consultants. Um, we first did it at the Brandywine River Museum. <coughs> That's in the upper left-hand corner, um, where we were faced with um, presenting Andrew Wyeth watercolors. And watercolors, you would not think, would be shown in daylight, but they were very insistent on that. But we had the control to museum level. So the, the light is directed to the walls, and most of the light is removed from the center of the room. It's so that we're able to control pre precisely the amount of light on the watercolors. At the Wadsworth Athenaeum, there's a grand space. <clears throat> they wanted, at times, to have textiles, tapestries in there. Again, so we took the same system in a vertical format and pushed the light to the ceiling. That's the lower left-hand corner. And then at the Ringling Museum in Sarasota, Florida, again, uh, to control the reflections in these very tall oil paintings, we pushed the light to the ceiling with the same system to light the room and to keep reflections off the oil and varnish. And then I'll talk a little bit about the Star Spangled Banner uh, in another slide. So, we, we use a lot of computers and software to, to calculate daylight, but we've learned over time that your eye is really the best judge of daylight. We do the computer calculations for technical assurance, but we build large-scale models to actually model how things are gonna look. So this is a model uh, of the chapel that we built. It's on the roof of my office, and we've been testing this now for a little over a year. It's an inch to the foot. It's a dollhouse scale, very large model. Um, you can see the scale of the model. we constantly taking light measurements to check uh, the quality of light and, and the amount of light. You can see the louver system on the lower left-hand slide, which is going to be built into the glass. <clears throat> and this is an actual photograph of the model of the interior. This is a detail uh, of how the louver system works. It's basically uh, a graduated system of louvers um, looking down on the, uh, on the bottom right. And th this is the Brandywine River Museum, which you can actually see the louvers in action. The other part um, of the equation is the artificial lighting. Um, so all of the hardware needed to be concealed from view. Uh, we're using... Um, a projector, which is actually shaping the light to the paintings and to the wall that we're lighting. And this is what we did with the Star Spangled Banner. And this gives us absolute control of the amount of light, of the shape of the light, and, and the evenness of the light. So you can see these projectors um, 
here, oops, in the in the slower slide. And then here in section, the, the, the projector is mounted vertically and the light is bounced off a mirror onto the wall. Thank you. Hi, I'd like to invite our speakers up for our discussion now. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, first, thank you all for coming. Um, we were planning to have a conversation of about 20 to 30 minutes, and then we wanted to open it up for questions from the audience, time permitting. Um, I was just struck uh, by all of your presentations, how seamlessly they, they wove together. Um, and as an art historian, I'm of course uh, perhaps obnoxiously concerned with uh, the art aspect of um, the art and architecture equation. And I was really struck also by um, thinking about Rothko's process and the interconnectedness there of art and architecture that um, the studio was rented specifically for the chapel commission and then the chapel was partially reconstructed in the studio, sort of perfectly merging the space of um, practice with the space of looking. And then how the chapel, you know, part of reconsidering um, the light in the Rothko Chapel is to better get at the light that Rothko saw in his New York studio. Um, so I was really interested in that parallel between uh, the space of the studio and the space of the chapel, the practice of painting and the process of looking and how this really will bring those two concepts together. Um, so I thought we could start maybe with, uh, I was really struck by Stephen's slide about contemplation and action um, and how, you know, obviously the new design of the Rothko Chapel is going to recalibrate the light, but it also is going to redirect um, the entrance to the space and reveal the volume of the room in different ways. Um, so I was wondering how you all think about the redesign um, in terms of enhancing the kind of multivalent uh, directions of the Rothko Chapel, how it's both inward facing and outward facing and if that's part of, of, of your concerns um, in, I guess, conceptualizing what's going on with the Rothko space? That'll long wind up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, go ahead. No, I, I think for me it's important, I mean, and Stephen mentioned it, to establish and, and keep that connection between the outside and the inside. So I think the, the nice thing about removing the baffle and replacing it with the louver system is that you'll have a little sort of the advantages of the connection, but not the disadvantages of the, the brightness and the damaging effects of light. Definitely. I mean, especially for the students in the room, I've had um, a lot of students say, you know, that their first impression of the paintings is that they look black. Um, and of course, the paintings reveal themselves um, as the light changes over time, leading to like these very distinct experiences based on different times of the day. And I was thinking about how the sort of the slow pace required for the paintings um, 
to come into view has become a hallmark of the Rothko Chapel. Uh, and I think, Stephen, you also mentioned about sort of the procession and the process. Um, and so what role is um, time going to play in the newly reconceived um, Rothko Chapel? Have you, how much do you guys consider the time-based experience for viewing the chapel as a work of art? I, th I think it's really central to what my father's aims were for that space, and it actually begins with that, that previous uh, collaboration with Johnson for the, the Seagram building in New York, where he knew he, it was going to be for a restaurant, and he knew that his big murals that he was making, the, the very large-scale murals he was making for that room, uh, people were not going to look at them for three minutes and pass on to the next painting. They were going to be in the room with him for a couple of hours at a time. I think based on that, he decided to sort of turn his color palette down a fair bit because you don't necessarily want to have a yellow painting staring at you for <laughs> two plus hours. But he also, I think, was aware that by having artwork that sort of seeped into you over time, he was going to have that sort of more profound interaction with his viewer that he'd hoped for uh, from the beginning. The chapel is really the ultimate uh, expression of that. And um, he uh, obviously he makes the uh, he makes the tonal palette even darker, but it's explicitly a place where you are invited to come and not simply look at art, but to go on some sort of uh, go on some sort of journey. So uh, I think it's it's it was core to his conception. I think uh, a lot of what we're trying to do is uh, to encourage people to spend more time there, and then as as George was trying to talk about, really be more ready for that experience. And I think that time is, the, and then being expanded out into the site a little bit more. So um, uh, we're also collaborating with Nelson Birdwoltz, the landscape architect, who's doing the landscape around that, and thinking both in terms of um, uh, making sure that, and uh, you know, I've seen so many people go and experience the art, and some people go quickly. Um, and I th where I'm hoping because of the changes they'll notice some of the subtlety maybe a little bit quicker and some people stay for a very, very long time. Um, uh, but, but that experience starts within the landscape and then also you should have time to decompress afterwards after you leave um, because it is, and I, you know, I've read lots of comments now in the little book where people mm -hmm. write down, it's for some people, a lot of people, it's a really powerful experience and really moving and you can't just walk out of a moving experience and just it doesn't disappear. You need time and space and in the landscape. I think we're trying to create spaces to allow you just to have a little bit of time to think about what did I experience to make sure like it, it sort of expands the time of, of interaction with the art. I think the longer someone stays in the chapel, the more they will see. It, it, and depending on our age, uh, it can take as long as 30 minutes for our eyes to fully adapt. So I'm hoping that we're doing as much as we can in the beginning to reduce that adaption time and make the paintings and that experience a lot more accessible. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's like some kind of balance there between sort of <coughs> allowing the paintings sort of to slowly seep into your consciousness and reveal themselves and then also um, for that also immediate impact that they also have at the same time. So it's a, it's a really delicate dynamic. Yeah, we want to make that handshake as smooth as possible. <laughs> we want it to happen faster so that it'll stay longer. Yes. <laughs> That's an interesting way of thinking about yeah. it. Um, I was also reminded of that story uh, in 1958 when Rothko had a show of paintings at Sidney Janis Gallery where he was always going in and like lowering the lights to like half 
masks like every day. So he's obviously, you know, the artist especially has spent so long thinking about lighting conditions and makes that so integral to the process. Um, so it's, it's, it's such a tricky thing that obviously even in his lifetime he wasn't, no, it's, it's impossible almost to get it right. Exactly right. <laughs> Maybe the mantra should be almost exactly right. <laughs> um, so I'm also interested, uh, I, and I keep pressing the art, the art thing because that is just my primary field of, of concern. Um, around 1949, and you mentioned this, Christopher, uh, in your presentation, this idea of um, paintings as an environment. Rothko began thinking of uh, paintings as a continuity and that the space between them was uh, perhaps if not as important to their perception, at least very much part of the conversation, um, part of the viewing space. Um, and the chapel then becomes like this perfect realization for that symbiosis between the discrete paintings and the space between them and how uh, these dimensions that he negotiated for with, with Johnson, um, are, become like this architectural sort of enclosure that is delineated by paintings. That the paintings don't like decorate the walls, they almost become the walls. That's probably very controversial to say in a room full of architects. Um, <laughs> but they are demarking the space in a, in a certain particular way. Um, and so I know you all must have you know, considered the idea, like the interplay between art and architecture, but I was wondering like how much is that at the forefront of um, the redesign, and I don't know, maybe that, I'll, I'll just end that there. Uh, how have you been thinking about the interplay between the art and architecture? Well, for me, it's how much light is on the paintings and how much light is on the architecture. And recently we were doing some artificial lighting mock-ups and we played with some of those balances and it was amazing how um, how uh, interactive the paintings were with that discussion or that conversation, that visual conversation of how much light do you have on the wall, how much light do you have on the paintings. And I think what's wonderful about the technology that we have is that we can adjust that. Yeah, and I, I don't know, at least the way we've been thinking about it is, first, they're not painting as objects, right? And they're not a building as a, as a building. So it true. is really thinking about it as an experience. Yeah. Uh, of an individual experience, and that is me, the space in between, and, and what I'm pulling in. And so that shifts how you make decisions when you're thinking about it that way. It's not a, how do I make the architecture better, is how do I make the experience better, because from what we understand and what we've learned from Christopher, really, is that was the original intent. Is, is it about the powerful experience of, of you going and experiencing that total uh, I mean, you could use an older term to that sort of total work of art, but it's not. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was going to butcher that, so I'm, I'm but, thank you. Following on to what you're saying, what I'm doing should be incredibly invisible. I mean, if somebody goes in and says they notice the light, then I think I made a big mistake, because it really is about the paintings and that experience. Yeah, your hands are like that, so quietly transformative. We, we don't want it, we want what we're doing to be beautiful, but not uh, grabbing your attention. Because we're, you know, also we're, we're not touching the paintings, and yet we're very much changing the experience of the art. 
Well, just just from a Houston perspective, I mean, how how dramatically different? I know it's supposed to be. I, I love the phrase that you used, quietly revolutionary. Um, but for those of us who are familiar with the chapel, like, will it be jarring? I mean, is it like get, you, a favorite person that you know getting a, a strange haircut? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go right now. <laughs> it's going to be taking the braces off, I think, really. Um. <laughs> nice analogy. <laughs> taking the baffle down. Exactly. Good. <laughs> um, I'm happy to hear that. I'm so, I think it's really exciting to think about how different it will look for all of us who are familiar. Um, and hopefully it just, it just helps you focus a little better. It shouldn't be something you focus upon. It would, should enhance your focus on the experience of the chapel. And do you, do you see the experience of the chapel as an art experience or an architect? I mean, I guess this is back to my other question about the interplay between art and architecture, but... Um, Balancing those two, or maybe it's a negotiation between these two elements, has been kind of, um, I don't want to say difficult, but there's some museum architecture where the architecture dominates the art, and then there's other spaces where you're, the, the architecture is supposed to disappear. And how do you feel that the chapel and its light will sort of play with the paintings? Well, I mean, the, the paintings are the size they are because of the size of the walls, and the size of the walls are the size they are yes. because of the size of the paintings. I mean, they're, they're really almost right. inseparable in that way, but maybe we shouldn't be thinking about is art or architecture dominant. I think they're all, both in the service of an experience, right. and for a lot of people, that's a deeply spiritual experience. For other people, it's more of an inward-turning experience, or some people, it's an outward-turning experience. It, the, the beauty of that space is it works so differently for different people, but I don't think my father was trying to create a specific art experience, he was trying to use it as a catalyst for you to really experience the world and everything you've been trying to think about for however many years you've been on this planet. So. <laughs> um, well, it's also been very clear from our discussion tonight that the character of the light is a sort of crucial aspect of the chapel um, and that the existing baffle has been this kind of canopy um, creating a, a, perhaps a, a heaviness in the space. Um, and getting rid of that might offer the space like this kind of greater possibility for ascension. Um, that the, you know, these color field canvases are supposed to almost be floating. And I was wondering how you may have consider light as a metaphor, like the, the lightness of light as a metaphor for what the paintings can do, that they've perhaps been weight weighed down and now maybe can ri better rise? I, I mean, technically, um, when I went into the chapel recently, I mean, the, the brightest thing that you saw in the room was the ceiling. Yeah. And we're changing that mix because the brightest thing now will be the paintings. So that balance will be changed and hopefully that will merge and lift that experience. I mean, it's a tall order, right? They're very dark paintings, and the sky is generally very bright. Um, but I, I like that idea that that's the aspiration, is to make the paintings the focus, even, you know, and to still let them sort of emerge in their, the depth with which Rothko painted them. Yeah. One of the details about the louvers, which we, is difficult technically, is that 
the top side of the louver is painted white and the underside of the louver is painted dark gray. Huh. And that yeah, and that will calm the ceiling down. Yeah. I mean I think one of the other things and we noticed this at a light test. Yeah. Um, just just a week or two ago with the with the, these are di the digital projectors. There is um, that was clear that I, I don't think I saw as much in other days I've been there, um, uh, which I think has to do with light level. Again, it's just, you know, there's the field, um, there's a almost, I, I think, border is what, what or frame that Carol uh, called it, where there's a subtle different reflectivity and there's mm -hmm. like a, a um, spatial effect or, or impact of that. And I, I think some of those subtle shifts and those qualities that you'll read into it will come out more easily, not just on the brightest day when enough light is coming in. And then uh, the other thing is, it, it, it seems, I, I, this is an untested theory, because, but I think the color of the light has changed because of the baffle, because of what it's reflecting mm. off mm. of. So I, I, I suspect there's going to be a truer, and, and day daylight color changes over the course of a day and right. the course of the year, but um, the, there's some impact of the baffle itself and the material that it's reflecting off of, sort of changing the current, right. the one that was there until two weeks ago, um, <laughs> uh, 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 cha changing that. And again, I think there'll be not this revolutionary change, but again, these, this is all about subtlety, right. or we hope it's all about subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> if not, we'll, we'll be running away from opening. Nervous laughter from the client. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that doesn't seem as subtle is, uh, you know, getting rid of that popcorn ceiling, which I thought had a lot of visual interest, perhaps <laughs> unfortunately, also sort of had lent it a period effect, uh -huh. um, will potentially also help focus, um, focus attention back on the smoothness of the painting. So there's also mm -hmm. something to do with surface and texture mm -hmm. there yeah. as well. Yeah, we're going to go for that swirly stucco. <laughs> <laughs> It, it was something that my... I think, that, uh, I think you're right. Yeah. My architecture husband was always distracted by that because it's illuminated mm -hmm. in, the, in that strange way. So it seems like this well, almost the, lunar surface. The light rakes across. The, yeah, and yeah. And we won't have that angle of light any longer. Yeah. Um, and, and to what degree have you thought about... Maybe this is too technical. Well, you're the technical person. So <laughs> to what degree have you thought about like the particulate matter in, in the air in Houston, which is a sensitive topic, perhaps, with, because of what's happened in the last few weeks, um, and, and how it might compare to the, to the light in, in New York, because that was part of, you know, one of the great concerns was that the light in Rothko's studio in New York, how he envisioned the experience of the paintings was very different from the light in Texas. You know, can, can one control for these kinds of subtle differences, or, and to what extent? Um. Well, if you think about uh, the studio in New York, it's surrounded, it's in a city. It's surrounded by buildings. Uh, and the chapel sits, you know, on a green plain in a sense, you know, even though it's in the city of Houston. Um, but I think every location, in, in my experience, has its own quality of light. I mean, you go to Greece, you go to Australia, you go to New York, you go to Texas. I mean, there's, there's a certain qualitative feeling that we have when we're in those environments. And I don't think, I mean, the model sits on the roof in Washington, D.C., you know, and it's, it's on a plain roof and there are no obstructions around. And uh, it's, it's, it's Washington light, you know, versus <laughs> Texas light. But there's a lot of similarity between the two. 
it's not exactly the same, but there's a lot of similarity. And I think the device that's being used uh, homogenizes the light in a certain way, but even though there's a direct connection to the sky, um, I, think, I, I don't think the Houston thing is going to change what we're looking at in, in Washington. I guess that's good, that's good to hear. <laughs> um, and, and to what extent, you know, does it not need to be the same light that Rothko envisioned? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're actually trying to replicate the light in the in chapel. New York. Yeah, first of all, that skylight was probably 100 years old when he already, when he was in that studio. Yeah. I doubt that it had ever been cleaned. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it, I'm not joking. And so. still the parachute, yeah, you know, kind of. the parachute. Yeah. And, uh, it's not that, I mean, look, it, that was a rather crude system. It's, he was simply trying to create an experience of being in a space that is naturally lit where times of day affect the light and times of year affect the light and passing weather affects the light. And that's, it's actually more pronounced because we're out much more in a plane than he was in, in New York. But that was the effect he was going after rather than having a light, uh, a, a spotlighting of a painting because that's, right. these were, again, on, only, they were almost paintings. They weren't even truly painting, so he's trying to get create an atmosphere rather than a specific lighting condition. And it's about the quality of diffuse light, which is, and there is an, actually in the system of, there is a, a sort of an abstract parachute at the bottom of the louvers, which is a perforated um, diffusing membrane, which will have a similar effect as a parachute. Oh. Like but that. it'll be stretched tight. It won't be the, the curvy line. It won't have the formal qualities. <laughs> I also like just thinking about the, you know, the kind of symbolic parachute as this, you know, and, it, and, it's, and the texture of it and the canvases also as a textural thing. And so there's all of these sort of different qualities at play in the space, you know, different kinds of physicalities engaging not just the sense of sight, but also maybe ideas of touch and t like we were speaking of earlier time and um, you know pressure and weight calibrated in, in different ways so it offers you know all kinds of exciting avenues for a different way to experience art it's still art to me I don't know I can't get away from that in a way um, so I don't know maybe we can open it up to questions from the audience if they're so should I do my little quick presentation. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Oh. There's more to the project, so I'm going to do a three-minute, oh, by the way, here's all the other stuff we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, whoops. And there goes my little controller. Okay, hold on a second. Let me get the snap back on. Okay. So, um, uh, okay, I swear I can do this in three minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> so, um, well, we've concentrated on the chapel itself, uh, I, I did mention there's a lot of other things that the Rothko Chapel as an organization is, and really dealing with issues of human rights and, and um, uh, public outreach. And there's a lot of things that happen there. So one of the reasons the uh, uh, project, uh, the rest of the project's happening to make sure that the chapel can be used for its original intention, and, and meaning you can go there and they're not setting up for some large event there. It'll still be used for some important things over the course of the year, but we need to clear out space and really create a space for an active organization that has a lot of symposiums, convenings, uh, engagement with the outside world. So um, this is the site right here. Uh, you can see the chapel. Really the first step that we're doing that we've talked about is adding landscape around the chapel and then adding uh, up in the corner a little welcome house. That allows us to clear out some of the uh, 
um, some of the books and things that the front desk had when he walked into the chapel. Um, and also gives you some bathrooms that are helpful when you're visiting. Um, so that's step one. But really step two is the larger project, uh, which is embedding the, um, uh, a series of new wood, uh, wood buildings into the neighborhood that uh, do a couple of different things. Um, there's the welcome house that we talked about. There's a program center, which is really an area to convene, um, and administrative building, uh, sort of offices and archives that go there. And that's all wrapped around a public courtyard. And while if you think of the chapel as this introverted uh, space, these are really about reaching to the outside world. And I think one of the brilliance of the de Manils of placing the chapel within uh, the park and within this residential neighborhood is really how it's woven in to the community. It's sort of this democratic ideal of engaging there. So um, while you have the uh, space of the chapel, um, you're going to have a similar space in, in footprint. It will be square, but similar height that really is filled with light. And you can see to the outside and you can see into it. Um, uh, it is going to be similar materials to the other bungalows. And of course, all you know, uh, or most of you, if you're here, you know those bungalows are, are gray. This is the one project where we didn't have to decide what color to make the project. Um, uh, so we're working really just with the same materials that are there. Some of them are bricks, some of them are, are wood frame houses. Um, we are uh, uh, just doing a simple stained wood uh, uh, wood siding, cedar siding that's stained manil gray. There's some examples of, of that type of cedar siding. Um, and then just a couple views of that. So on, I'm on Sol Ross, the chapel is to my left. You can see the uh, Welcome Pavilion, which is really two walls of glass with a large trellis to provide shade. Um, the program building in the back and then the offices right here that sit directly across from the chapel and are the same width at the end of the chapel and, and same height. And then walking up to that new uh, public courtyard, the uh, Welcome House uh, uh, to my left, that big public room in the back of the program, uh, program center, and then administrative uh, to the right, which also has the archives. And then looking from that main new space that looks engages the outside, it has a series of, of, of um, louvers just to keep the sun from uh, getting out of control in there. We, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, uh, and then, of course, that, that all is in support of this larger goals of, of uh, uh, the Rothko Chapel and making sure that in really making a little mini north campus across Sol Ross, that we're just clearing out the space and, and really opening up the landscape around the chapel itself so it really can be engaged within that landscape. And so um, that, that's the three-minute and 30-second version of where we are. <laughs> Are there any questions? Go back here. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, um, have you discovered anything that, you, uh, that, that really surprised you with the moving of the baffle or just getting in there and getting your hands dirty in your basement as of today? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't surprised. I was up uh, on the, under the skylight uh, today without the baffle and I thought, boy, this light's really intense. <laughs> no, no big oh, surprise yet. Sorry, I, I just wanted to make a note that we have microphones, so um, as you put your hand up, um, wait for a microphone before you ask your question so that we can all hear you. Um, my question is, is there going to be, is there 
Um, my question is, is there going to be mirrors in this design? And if there is, if you could talk a little bit more about that. What in the design? Mirrors? Mirror? Yes. Um, there, because of the way the projectors are positioned, we will have some front surface mirrors, which are quite small, to, re to redirect the light coming out of the projector onto the painting in the wall. These are very typical uh, that are used in uh, the media, audiovisual. I mean, they're, they're very accurate, precise devices. I can speak pretty loudly. Okay. Um, how scary is it to have a flat roof in Houston with Rothko's? Was there any consideration about modifying it, giving a slope to it? You know, the, the roof, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to jinx it because it's been fine um, until now. Uh, uh, it's funny, we're working with um, a consultant who just deals with waterproofing, who's here tonight. Um, so I should be asking uh, him that question. Um, uh, it isn't scary. I think, I think that um, if care is made on how you detail it, and that there's a really, and same thing with the skylight, a really, really serious water testing um, uh, done before, uh, before it opens, um, then, then our experience is, then it's fine. Just test, test, redundancy and testing. <laughs> This is rather specific. I've known the chapel. I've worked there for 33 years, so I'm very intimate with the space. I don't know if you were aware if that was part of your conversation, but when they put in the new skylight and the new baffle in 2000, every November, now for 19 years, there's a light, an orange light that comes through. It's a light that is colored orange. And it starts on the northwest panel and moves across the north wall to the northeast panel and a little bit to the east wall. And I don't know if that was uh, pointed out to you or that was part of the conversation that you've had. There's something either about the glass or something on the roof because they've also made changes on the roof and had new equipment. So maybe at that time of the year in November, where the sun is located, if it hits that, whatever it is, and bounces it onto the skylight, or if it, the glass of the skylight causes that, I don't know. But is that, are you keeping the skylight glass or are you changing it? The skylight will be, will be glass. Yes, um, but it's the same one or something? It'll be a new glass, okay. high-performance glass. So I, I just wanted to bring so that out. We're going to have a special festival of the orange light. <laughs> <laughs> but it altered so the color of the paintings. Uh -huh. It looked like there was this orange uh, thing that uh, appeared on the paintings. At first, we were worried that something happened to the paintings. And then as the day progressed, we realized it was moving. So I, I just wanted to know if, if you were aware of that. Does the um, program center sort of subsume the function of the chapel to do big events, significant events? Because one of the purposes of those the 1977-78 baffle and the 1999-2001 baffle 
was to hang those ugly lights. <laughs> and those, that, those two lights that you saw in those photographs, I think those two lights, there were four of them to begin with, I think they went up on September the 9th or 8th, 2001, and they never came down. We, we, will, we will have those lights, but you won't see them. Good. They'll be hidden. <laughs> Good. Um, and there will, I guess the intent is that there still can be special events within the chapel, and there'll be the technology to support it. We're trying to hide that technology, but reduce the reliance on the chapel as the one space for convening. Yeah. So we'll still our, our most our, our largest events. So the uh, Martin Luther King celebration each year, the um, the Oscar Romero Award. So there will be some some musical events will still happen in the chapel, but the majority of uh, particularly I think particularly lectures where we can't, can't even have a, any kind of video projection, uh, any kind of film, anything that involves movement. Those will be happening in the program center. Well, that was my yeah. question. Was, uh, if you have a program center, was there a consideration of just uh, allowing the viewing of the paintings just until twilight? And no artificial light. So the 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 paintings will be viewed just just with um, just with natural light, except when it becomes so dark that you really can't see anything. So in you know in December and January, probably at four thirty or five, the uh, artificial lights will come on at a low level to just assist a little bit. At nighttime, if we're having a program in there, we'll have artificial lighting. But otherwise, it will simply be the natural light. Um, this question will be for Christopher. Um, how did you and what process did you and the organization go through to select such um, partners for an important project? Uh, it was a lengthy process. Uh, we talked to a, a lot of different people. Um, uh, when, when I became board chair, it's now I think like six years ago, I spent really the first year just talking to architects and lighting designers and landscape designers and talking to people I knew um, in, in and about those fields, trying to get the, the names of people who would be, it's not simply fi enough to find somebody who's really good and really confident what they do, but people who have the right sensitivity to working with a space like this, which, you know, you breathe too hard in the Rothko Chapel, and it sends off ripples, right? So, um, and fortunately for us, we, we, we found them and we have a wonderful team of people at the chapel working with me to uh, do, do, the, uh, do the vetting and really uh, get, you know, meet these people and, and, and find the right ones, so. It was a great process, actually. There were uh, several mentions of damages to the paintings. Uh, I was wondering what ex exactly was the extent of the damage, and are they being repaired during their storage? So fortunately, the damage is all uh, past tense. They were conserved uh, twice by uh, now Rothko Chapel board member Carolyn Kusingaro, who was uh, conserved her at the, at the Menil for uh, 20 years, and she, she did two rounds of conservation on them uh, for damage uh, largely based to uh, due to light exposure, but also uh, interactions with some of the chemical components in, in the paints themselves. Uh, and fortunately, the, the paintings have been very stable since, uh, since 1999 when they were last, last conserved. I don't think there's any, uh, they, they get checked annually, and I don't think there's any real concern that they've, uh, they've changed at all since then. I wonder, I wonder if any of you feel that uh, Johnson's original uh, architectural solution with the tall cone and the source of light so much further away from the paintings that might, that might have provided uh, a better solution initially for the, uh, the, the lighting of the building? I'll let you do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to 
so um, the the long, tall, narrow tube would have focused the light mainly on the floor. Um, and it might have had the benefit of not putting so much light on the paintings in terms of damage and conservation, but it, it really would have been uh, a very dramatic uh, lighting effect and probably not the sort of uh, democratic sense that one, one would want. But was it a cone? If so it spread, it was narrower at the top. No, it, it, I don't... I, yeah, yeah, the ones that I've seen, basically the way they were configured, they were, really would have put the light on the floor, uh, even though it tapered, some of them tapered out more. The, uh, a good example of that is the Corbusier Chapel uh, in uh, La Tourette, a uh, very similar type of thing where the light is focused on an altar. Hi. I was surprised after hearing you talk about the new program space and where the buildings would be to see the buildings to the north of the chapel because that seems to make it difficult to make the transition back to the obelisk courtyard. And I'm just concerned that it probably needs a lot. Maybe it's there and I can't see it, but I'm concerned about the procession into the chapel coming out and reversing back that those pathways, those inevitable pathways which are a little bit asymmetrical coming from the north side be controlled to really contribute to the experience rather than just be a separate building, a separate campus for programs across the street that's physically adjacent but mentally miles away. Wow. There was a little bit of discussion about that for about <laughs> a year. Um, uh, um, there, there was a lot of study about different places of uh, how to place the buildings on the site, um, even the uh, welcome building. And then in the end, I think there was a really strong, really everyone, um, uh, a strong feeling that having buildings work in concert with the chapel would fundamentally change the nature of the chapel itself. Uh, and so the decision to move those buildings across Sol Ross, while they're actually incredibly close, yeah. right, you know, from the back of that right edge of the program space where the glass is to where the projector booth is, it's not a long distance. And we actually looked at what those views are that we felt like balancing it across the street um, protected the chapel, and that was always at the highest the list. We didn't want to undermine original intent. That said, there was a lot of, and even moving the welcome um, house, which is a little structure, we looked at it much closer, but again, all of a sudden it became about two buildings talking to each other um, in a way that we felt like didn't mind that. So we've worked, and I think Nelson Bird Wolf has worked really hard to allow different ways of connection between the two. But remember, the main connection for most people will just be from the welcome house to the chapel, the rest of the buildings are people coming for convenings or an event like, uh, like this. So it's again, it's always this game of balance and trying to subtly adjust it so we're not too, too removed because we share, you know, we don't want to have it just separated. Um, the nice thing about Sol Ross is there's just not a lot of cars there because it's closed off, the street is closed off over on St. Thomas. But it, but, uh, it was a big consideration as we, as we talked through this. from Jerusalem to be in Houston for two days. 
and somebody had set up a lovely meeting at the Rothko Chapel, and we came along the north side on Sol Ross, and these teenage kids were distracted, you know, they're teenage kids. And it was a difficult entry then, and I'm just looking forward to seeing how all the mastery and artistry will make those aisleway spaces contribute rather than distract from the well, scheme. So, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll bring back the bus lot of kids later. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so Rothko Chapel um, inside is housed beautiful artistic pieces. Um, in an environment such as Houston with, I guess, inclement and extreme weather, um, I'm, not, I'm just curious to know whether you guys have considered maybe how to protect the pieces inside, um, like just in case like, if there's a flood or something like that. Um, we've done a lot of measures to make the, the chapel more resilient. Um, so first, we've taken the mechanical equipment, put it across the street, and raised it up onto a second floor to a mechanical mezzanine. And we've added emergency generators, so if the power goes out, it still powers the mechanical equipment so we can keep the humidity and temperature correct. And then um, uh, we have a series of floodgates that can drop in by the doors. So basically, there'll be little channels. You can drop these things in. They'll be around this high. Uh, so if there is, looks like there is going to be a flood or really bad rain event on all the doors, we, we have these. Um, and then they'll just be sort of stored off to the side. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of concern about that and, and a lot of work to, to um, uh, try to address. And also a lot of work on the ground itself to improve drainage. We actually have a pretty significant drainage system going in right next to the chapel that should uh, channel away a lot of water. I and mean, we've been fortunate in terms of the, the grounds never having uh, flooded, but uh, we, you know, we want to keep that never. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so uh, thank you for the presentation. That was amazing. Um, I was wondering, Christopher, how would your father want us to experience the the chapel. I often just go to one painting and then I feel ashamed that I didn't stare at other ones. So <laughs> I want to know like, what, what your father was thinking in terms of the experience you have when you go to the chapel. Hey, he wanted you to be ashamed. I think that really, he, he really was trying not to be prescriptive in terms of what your experience is. You, I talk about the chapel as being sort of half an artwork that you have to bring uh, more than half of what's going to happen in there yourself. And sometimes, I, I will tell you, sometimes I go in the chapel and nothing happens. And the chapel hasn't changed that much. Maybe the light's a little different that day, but some days I'm bringing my whole self and some days I just don't have my whole self to bring. So where, if you're finding the key in one painting, if you're finding it by sitting further across the room and just looking at triptych, sometimes I just close my eyes in there. You know, the, pa the paintings are very present, even when you close your eyes. It's, um, so the, I think the only prescription in there is that you, you have to engage. You, um, if you go in there and you're just looking for, uh, you know, looking for a pretty picture or you just sort of want to have a walk around and out, then you probably really haven't used it as it was meant to use. Uh, but beyond that, it's really for you to figure out what's, how it's moving you. I, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. And if anyone has any further questions, there's going to be a reception outside. And I know each of our speakers would be happy to answer any other questions. Thank you. Thank you.